internet friends and welcome back to love hate relationship 2020 edition uh an opinionated podcast for opinionated people i'm andy boel and i'm alex ruiz and as always we are here to brighten your day anger your soul and tell you how to live your lives in that order and well uh at time of recording listeners uh, it's still 2019 for us it's 2020 for all of you how's it look on that side because <laughs> it's not looking great on our end so like is is hindsight good or or are are we still continuing our slow plummet down the drain? Yeah, no impeachment spoilers for any of you time travelers out there. Oh um, god. Y'all y'all we're we're recording this on impeachment day. We are. I haven't seen I haven't seen the latest updates. Uh, I'm not sure I want to cuz I want to sleep tonight. Yeah, and I'm I'm pessimistic enough to believe that it truly doesn't matter what happens in the grand scheme of our quality of life anyway. Um, but speaking of impeachment, one one thing that has happened since we last recorded that I wanted to touch upon. So Coheed and Cambria, beautiful, wonderful boys that they are, released a Christmas music video, which the band had never done before, for uh, one of the songs off their latest album, Toys. And this music video is an animated adventure of... Santa Claus giving Donald Trump the presidency inadvertently realizing his mistake and then like commando style seal team six style going to the white house with a bunch of commando elves who are my favorite part of that music video uh, killing a bunch of Trump supporters or not even killing. He never kills anybody, but like shooting them with beanbag shotguns and shit. And it ends with Santa Claus spanking Donald Trump. And God, if as if we needed reasons to love them any more than we do. Now, see, I really want to know how this is going to fit into the larger, like Amory Wars narrative. <laughs> like where, like, one day in like 30 years when Claudio Sanchez actually gets around to finishing writing these comics, like, I want to see how he works that storyline into that comic. Because I'm assuming Toys is going to play into it. Granted, it is the shortest, uh, it is the shortest Coheed title ever, I think, of all their albums, I'm pretty sure. Yes, I can't think of anything shorter than four characters. Hmm, Okay. 2113 so we, is technically five. <laughs> two, one, two, one, one, two, three. two, one, colon, one, three. Ah, there is the character. Yep, yep. Mm. <laughs> is that supposed to be a 2112 sequel reference? You like, know, it, it, it's a it's a 2112 callback, which is okay. insane enough to just make me giddy. And then, you know, as is his way, Claudio... Um, worked that into the narrative and to go on the briefest tangents, apparently in the story, like 2113, which is also like 913 PM is the moment when, um, Coheed, you know, murders his daughter because he thinks he has to. And that is the, like, that is what 2113 is referencing. And we've, we've talked about them at length and we have other things to talk about, but um, a bunch of right wing MAGA rock and roll fans are getting super upset 
at Coheed to the point where Claudio put out on Instagram a message that was basically like, what's Christmas without a family feud, guys? And I'm just sitting here laughing at these stupid fuckers being like, D- were you not paying attention when these guys took Anton Scalia's dissenting opinion, put it to music, and made a big giant joke about it? Like, Coheed is not a, a any anything other than a left-leaning band, you idiots. <laughs> Uh, I was about to reference that Antonin Scalia song, like, and, it's a great and song. they came out, you know, and yeah, and they came out right around that, like, George W. Bush era where, like, they were doing shit at the same time that, like, Disturbed released 10,000 Fists, which is not a great <laughs> album. Oh, shit, that sent me spiraling back <laughs> nostalgically for a second. <laughs> Sure. And and again, 10,000 Fists, not a great album, but definitely an album where Disturbed made clear their opinions about the George W. Bush administration. Indeed. So, and I'm pretty sure they probably toured together on on that album or around there. Like, Coheed really came out at that peak era. And I think, I don't think any of those bands have, like, gone, you know what, I really hated George W. Bush, but something about this here Donald Trump feller just, just gets me right in the cockles. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. I mean... The only rock bands I really can think of that were, you know, shitting on Bush while he was in office were Disturbed and Pearl Jam. But. Oh, I mean, Springsteen was doing it. Like, lots of bands were doing it. Like, of all, of multiple ages. It was just kind of a. See, that was really one of those. Okay, I hate referencing South Park on our show. Um, just because it is a show that I like have a lot of virulent criticisms of, despite the fact that I came up watching it extensively. Um, but I never felt the like country and rock and roll divide more than during the Bush administration. And then South Park does their episode where it's like the founding fathers would have protested the war. The founding fathers would have supported the troops. Rock and roll, country, rawr, protest, 100 <laughs> episodes. And and the thing is, like, I really experienced that because I was, I was a huge rock fan and I was a moderate country fan. And I remember sitting here being like, okay, the Dixie Chicks and Toby Keith are fighting over the Bush administration right now. Alan Jackson's doing some terrible, bullshitty, like... Where were you when the world stopped turning horseshit song, which again got parodied on South Park. And like, that was the moment where I fell off of so much country music. And it, it, I felt that so strongly, but all of the rock musicians were like, like REM did a thing against George W. Bush. They did, yeah. Uh, Like, Everybody had something like Lord knows there was audio slave at that time and say what you will about Chris Cornell being maybe obfuscating things at least more than Zach De La Roche did. But 
Tom Morello certainly did not mince any words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. You're right. I, I completely forgot about Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> yeah. I think at that time they, they had broken up. Zach De La Roach was doing his own thing. I, he might have started one day as a lion by then. But, uh, yeah, there was audio slate. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Oh, so in any case, just your your reminder for this bright new year you're listening to us in that, you know, art cannot be apolitical. I'm seeing a whole bunch of things of people being like, keep your politics out of my video games, keep your politics out of my music. And it, it, that's a, a fool's notion to try and carry anyway. And there's your, your update on Coheed and... <laughs> I guess kind of also your update on our politics while we're at it. <laughs> and Andy, do you remember when we were like talking about starting this podcast? And I think I think it was me who straight up wrote in our like notes back and forth as we were developing the idea. Like, I don't want to pretend like we don't have politics, but I don't want our politics to ever be like front and center. And then like how many months later did I do an entire segment on Steve King? Like... It was no fewer than three. <laughs> like, like that was before we hit up episode 10, I think. Uh, <laughs> gotta love me. And I do. Um, yeah. Speaking of loves, there's a pivot. Uh, every oh. episode on love-hate relationship. Hi, if, if you're listening to us in 2019, you haven't heard us before and you're giving it a shot. Um, thank you for surviving past the douchebag buffer. Every episode of love-hate relationship, one of us talks about a thing we love. The other one talks about something we hate. And then we take your relationship questions and give our perfectly unqualified advice. And starting off the year on an optimistic note, I am bringing the love to the table this time. You've read the title, but, you know, just reading the title this time doesn't necessarily clue you in on what I'm talking about. But, uh, Alex, for, for our first episode of 2020, I want to talk about why I love the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. All right. Uh, I will state up front. I have heard a lot about this show. I have never seen a single episode of it. So I really love a lot of the things I'm reading in this notes, on these notes, especially about the cast. But you uh, you take point on this one because I, I don't know much about it, but well, and, I might have read. I didn't prime you with this, but I just want really quickly to know, like, like are you what is, what is your opinion of war movies as a whole? Um, I think that as a genre, they, I, I, I look at them in much the same way that I would categorize any other genre, um, you know, especially period genres, your Westerns, your Medievals, your Elizabethans, your Victorian, like, it's definitely a type of period genre. With that, there are always... Uh, how do I put this delicately? My experience of war movies are they can be really fertile, interesting places for cool, interesting art. And frequently, I'm not going to say the majority of the time, but frequently, the genre trappings are so hard to escape from that they have a bad habit of becoming kind of rote and dull to me. So... There's a lot of war movies that I like. 
There are, it's never been a genre that I've like spent super long amounts of time with just because a lot of it feels kind of rote and basic and predictable and dull to me. Okay. Does that make sense? I'm trying to be nuanced. Oh, it it totally does. And I I thank you for giving a a truly off the cuff answer there. Um, My dad was always a huge war buff and, and specifically, you know, World War II movie buff. He's always been a, a massive fan of fighter planes and, you know, never, never served, but always wanted to. He actually, um, always used to tell me he would have joined the air force, except he had broken his arm in a way as a kid where they were like, yeah, you, we, you wouldn't be able to be in a fighter jet. And he was like, oh, okay, well, whatever then. Um, so I grew up watching quite a few war movies as a kid and, I am here to state without hyperbole that Band of Brothers is the greatest dramatized war story put to screen. Be it movie, be it TV show, Band of Brothers is the peak of the mountain. It is my favorite, not only just World War II show movie whatever you want to call it i mean it's a miniseries but miniseries is so limiting it is my favorite war story and i have seen it at least six or seven times in my life so band of brothers is a 10 episode 2001 american war drama miniseries based on historian stephen ambrose's 1992 fictional book of the same title it was produced by steven spielberg and tom hanks and is the dramatic retelling of the history of the 506th parachute infantry regiment of the 101st airborne division easy company going all the way from their training camp through the end of world war ii um okay real quick did you say it's fiction or non-fiction well it is it is non-fiction i i keep using the word dramatized because dramatized dr- dramatized i keep, dramatizes yeah <laughs> it is it is non-fiction the events of the show actually happened Easy Company 101st Airborne was a real military unit. All of the characters that are in the show were real men. And so real, in fact, that many of the surviving members of Easy Company served as consultants for the show and also would give like interviews before each episode. So you see these, you know, these elderly war veterans. Uh, talking about their experiences in World War II, and then you would watch an hour-long episode of, of of exactly what they're just talking about. You know, landing behind Normandy Beach and going through the Battle of the Bulge. All of this was real, but you know, it, to to make it a show and to make it like not just a documentary. Um, you know, Spielberg and Hanks and the producers they all agreed to change a couple things here and there like you know maybe like you have you like you have to exactly you know so the the thing that i was reading is like they would take like the experiences of 10 different guys and give all those experiences to one character but all Mm -hmm. the all the 10 guys are still there it's 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 just stuff like that it's it's little things along the way but unlike Saving Private Ryan, unlike, you know, any 
war story that isn't usually a biopic you know the all of this really happened and that's that's part of the reason why i love this show so much is there is an extra investment in the characters knowing that these were real men and that you know the things you see on the screen by and large happened as you see them it just it, it makes it so much more compelling than say Pearl Harbor, where, you know, Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett weren't real fighter pilots. They were two characters who were entirely made up. Sure. I mean, in fairness, the fact that uh, Pearl Harbor was not based on real people is not the biggest problem with Pearl Harbor. No, no, it's not. (laughs) I'm not going to make it. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are, Danny. Look at me. I'm so cold. I'm so cold. The only, like, movie I can think of is um, Mel Gibson is enjoying a career renaissance and came out with a World War II movie called Hacksaw Ridge starring Andrew Garfield. And it's very well done, but the story of the medic that Andrew Garfield plays, this guy who went through World War II without ever firing a, a weapon because he was a conscientious objector, like like the story of that man's life is so insane that they had to cut stuff out of the movie because they were like, well, if we put this in, people aren't are going to feel like this is totally implausible. I digress. Um, Band of Brothers is real, and I, I love that it's real. The other thing, you know, growing up watching World War II movies, I love a good ensemble. I adore an ensemble movie. It's it's one of my favorite things about the war movie genre. It's also one of my favorite things about horror. You know, you, you get your collection of five, six, seven characters. You learn a bit about them, and then... You know, not to be perverse, but you you watch as some of them survive and some of them don't. And yeah. I just I enjoy the trappings of that genre. It's a it's a framework that I've always really connected to. Something that's really amazing about Band of Brothers is it's not just six or seven guys. It really is like the entirety of easy company, you know, there's the main, main, main couple of guys who walk you through the whole show more or less, but really it is this collection of 20 or so 25 men who, you know, are the guys you're introduced to in episode one. And you can, I've seen the show enough that I can, like watch the first episode where they're all going through boot camp and you see one guy like in the back of the frame who doesn't really say anything. And I see that guy and remember, Oh, he's in like every episode all the way up until episode seven. And he never really says much, but he's there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you know, you get, you, you get your main character who is uh, major Dick winters. Um, yeah, I know. It was the forties. You get major winners played by Damian Lewis, and he is like the central protagonist of the show, but it's really not so much about him as much as it's just like, 
well, he is the leader and he is the one guy that we can make as a through line and we can have, you know, these 25 other guys all creating their own characters, all giving these amazing charismatic performances around that. And I, I love like he's that. He's your POV. Yeah. He's your pr- POV character. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, please go down the rest of this cast. Oh, don't worry. They look great. (laughs) Yes. You know, something other, probably the main reason, honestly, I love band of brothers more than the fact that it's real, more than the fact that it's a, a good ensemble world war two story. This has a phenomenal cast. And, you know, it's funny, this was made in 2001, so I'm going to read off the entire list and then talk about, like, which guys were really in it and which guys were just cameos. But Band of Brothers stars, as I mentioned, Damian Lewis, who people might recognize from Homeland or Billions as Richard Dick Winters. Um, But it also has... Ron Livingston, who is the main character from Office Space, Scott Grimes from ER, and also Steve Smith from American Dad, um, Donnie Wahlberg, who is the better Wahlberg, uh, Michael Cudlitz, <laughs> who is <laughs> Michael Cudlitz, who uh, you will recognize as Abraham from The Walking Dead, Neil McDonough and Kirk Acevedo, Acevedo, Acevedo. Uh, Neil McDonough and Kirk Acevedo, who have both gone on to do like a bunch of DC, like arrow stuff respectively, um, and has cameo roles from Tom Hardy, Jamie Bamber, Dominic Cooper, James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Simon Pegg, Jimmy Fallon, and David Schwimmer at the height of his friend's powers, uh, is in the first episode as the ultra hateable douchebag Captain Sobel. And... Like I said, it is 2001. The majority of the cast was completely unknown. And I've mm-hmm. always loved in the 18 years since this come out, you know, seeing these guys careers blossom and seeing who's in what and seeing who like went on to really have a big career. You know, probably the biggest name I mentioned off that list was arguably Tom Hardy. Um, Tom Hardy is in like three scenes of the entirety of band of brothers right at the end. And he just kind of shows up there. You know, Michael Fassbender is in like five minutes of the entire show. Simon Pegg is in one episode and then he gets blown up in a plane and it's all these, like these bigger names don't really get the bigger roles because at the time it was like, you didn't know you had a Michael Fassbender on your hands. You didn't know you had a Tom Hardy but they were able to give these roles to your Scott Grimeses and your Michael Kudlitzes, who, you know, he's gone on to have a really extensive career in his own right. I think I'm going to go bananas. Do not go bananas. It's going to happen. Oh, I'm going to go, go bananas. bananas Do it, Steve. Go bananas. <laughs> you know, just, just to run through without going through everybody, some of the, highlights of people's careers 
um, Richard Spite Jr., who is Gabriel from Supernatural, which I've never even watched, but I understand, you know, Supernatural had like 13 seasons and was a big deal. He's in this. One of the featured guys from Fight Club is in this. Uh, one of the ultra effeminate gay men from But I'm a Cheerleader. He plays, you know, a young rookie soldier, and it's such such whiplash to go from one to the other and be like, wait, you're you're in both. One of my favorite guys in the whole show, uh, the the real man's name was Joseph Liebgott, and I, I didn't write down the actor, but the other claim to fame he has is he played the child version of Freddie Mercury in the music video for The Miracle. <laughs> like, Alex, you're, you're a Doctor Who fan. Do you remember yeah. um, it was... During the Tenth Doctor's run, there's an episode about a guy who, like, like David Tennant isn't even in it, but it's about this guy who keeps like just missing the Doctor and uh, moaning Myrtle winds up being his girlfriend, and by the end of the episode, they both get like sucked into this alien and they live in his stomach. You you remember who I'm talking about? It sounds familiar. I I feel like I remember this. Uh, so that actor, um. He plays Albert Blythe in the show, and I didn't, uh, I'm kicking myself now, I didn't take his name either, but the guy from Doctor Who, who was in that delightfully quirky episode, he gets an entire, like, episode of the show where he's basically your main character, and they use it as this big discussion for how the guy gets PTSD kind of instantly as soon as he lands and in the middle of a battle he just kind of gets hysterical blindness and goes blind it's you know it's a really great opportunity for these guys to do stuff that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to in their careers you know i mentioned scott grimes who is most well known for being one of seth MacFarlane's best friends and being in all of his projects and he gives you know this this fantastic great performance as sergeant donald malarkey it's it's such a joy for me. I love this, this, it, this almost six degrees of separation thing going on where it's like, oh, oh, I recognize him. Oh, he was in Band of Brothers. Or, you know, you're watching Band of Brothers for the sixth time and you realize, holy shit, that's Jimmy Fallon as Jeep driver who brings them ammo. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, I, I get a, a joy out of it. I really do. Can I sidebar you real quick? Yeah, of course. So the the thing that that reminds me of the most, because I I, I, I can relate to you on this in that I, I remember one property where I'm like, oh my God, all of these people are on this show, not only like once, but some of them appear multiple times. Do you remember the old Captain Planet cartoon from the 90s? Oh, uh, of course. Do you know that everyone was on that show at one point or like it wasn't just voice actors like LeVar Burton or Scott Menville or Ed Asner or Frank Welker? Whoopi Goldberg and Meg Ryan had recurring roles on that. Margot Kidder was on that show. Martin Sheen and Jeff Goldblum were on that show. Lou Gossett Jr., Malcolm McDowell. I've got the IMDb open right here. Fred Savage was on an episode. Neil Patrick Harris was on an episode. Uh, God damn. Just like Casey Kasem did an episode. Just Ted Turner was on an episode. Like it was a show where they did not announce anyone in the cast 
like really predominantly, but fucking everyone in Hollywood who was anyone in the 90s did at least one, some of them like 30 episodes. <laughs> I I I love that. I I did not know that, but that's kind of like your your base mark of who actually cares about the environment. <laughs> I mean, like I'm not shitting Sting was on an episode. Meg Ryan was Dr. Blight, who was one of the biggest villains of the entire series. And she was in a bunch of episodes. Oh, sure. And this was Meg Ryan in 1990. Meg Ryan was a movie star in 1990. I'm, I'm looking it up now because I just, I had a funny feeling. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Jeff Goldblum was verminous scum who was the <laughs> rat man. <laughs> and I'm sitting here being like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't remember that, but I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't need to do that at the time, but he did it. <laughs> Wait till you taste my scummy brew. Uh, we don't deserve Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, you didn't deserve me derailing your passionate uh, exploration of no, Band so, of Brothers so by interrupting it with Captain Planet. That that is the aesthetic of this show boiled down into thirty seconds. <laughs> Andy loves something and Alex ruins it with talk of voice actors. Well, we just, we, we find a way to, you know, totally derail each other. Link together things. I I like to put it that way. Like, like what is each, each derailment is a link in a chain. And at the end of the chain, we try and figure out which one of us is going to hit the other one with the chain. <laughs> That's the aesthetic of the show boiled down. Absolutely. <laughs> there we go. That's it. Slap it on a commercial. Do people still watch commercials? You know, on YouTube. derailment within a derailment. Hulu is doing this thing now where they maybe don't play ads, but if you pause the episode of whatever you're watching, this like, the sidebar advertisement for Glade plugins or Charmin or whatever pops up and it doesn't make any noise, but you can't avoid seeing it. And I think that is the friggin' future of advertisement. I love that. Like, like give me a thing when I pause the TV show over commercials any day. I could think of worse things. Yeah. I mean, so I, I love this, this pick and choose, like seeing the guy and, and, you know, war movies are really great from that because every once in a while you'll get like, like, like Rick Perry being like, I don't want to be in 90210 anymore. I want to be in a Vietnam movie and really like cut my teeth and become a real actor or I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Do you mean, I mean, tell Luke, me you Perry. mean Luke Perry. I, I do mean Luke Perry. <laughs> I was about to Rick like Perry, the guy from Donald Journey. Trump's secretary of energy, former <laughs> Texas governor, Rick Perry, the man who couldn't name a third out of three things. <laughs> I do not mean, I do not mean this I, I, man. I mean, I do mean Luke Perry. I'll use an example. I can speak better to. Um, it's like taking, um, the, the one of the pretty boys from American Horror Story and sticking him in a World War II fighter plane movie. It's you know it, it's it's Don Cheadle before you know he's Don Cheadle being in Hamburger Hill. It's I I, I just I 
and, and not even just it's war movies. Like like one of Liam it's Neeson's Vin Diesel coming off of Street Sharks yep. commercials to do Saving Private Ryan. Absolutely, I I love this phenomenon. I love this little thing in my my media, my television and movies. The other thing I love about Band of Brothers, um, you know, it it it, it gets to kind of cheat. By being a 10-episode miniseries, each episode is an hour, it winds up being this 10-hour-long, you know, story with all of the production value of an actual movie, you know? It's if Saving Private Ryan were 10 hours long and, you know, still has all of the all of the big budget. This was, at the time of its production, the most expensive miniseries ever made. And it, it looks it. The cinematography is amazing. The costuming is accurate and perfect. Um, you know, they built all these sets all around, like, England and parts of France to, you know, recreate these little villages and, you know, arenas of, of battle. And you reinforce that with the fact that it all really happened. You know, the show goes from Normandy on D-Day through France, Belgium, into the Battle of the Bulge. Finally, you know, you wind up at the end of the war in Germany. The whole time you're seeing real things or as close as the show could get. Um, You know, admittedly, the real Dick Winters was a consultant on the show, And, you know, they would show the veterans, the real men, every episode before it aired. And at one point, you know, they were asking his opinion. And the thing that the real major winner said was, you know, I just I wish it could have been even more accurate. So admittedly, it's it's not perfect, but you still fall in love with all these charming, compelling characters. And, you know, you, you get your heart broken when one of them gets shot or, or gets hit by a mortar and gets mutilated. There's such a strong emotional impact knowing that they were real. Hmm. And I, I really love it. You know, it's, it's cheating a little bit by not quite being a TV show, not quite being a movie, but I, I, you know, I, I'm going to just, I'm going to push back on that. Like, I think miniseries are perfectly valid, like cinematic format. And I, I've argued that for really, really great storytelling, you know, they might be the best. I would agree with that. Uh, I don't, you know, we, we talked a lot last episode about, how impressive it was that Bob's Burgers could be so good after 10 years and about where the Simpsons, like how the Simpsons started not great, got incredible, fell off and has gotten worse. And, you know, I, I've I've lived with a theory for a number of years that the perfect length for any like regular TV show is three to seven seasons. Fewer than three, you tend to feel a little gypped. Most shows uh, that go past seven seasons tend to fall off around that point. And it's usually like season five, six, seven yeah. that it starts getting bad. So generally speaking, like you that that's like the ideal time frame for a TV show has been an argument I've had. And there have been exceptions. Um, I, I consider Bob's Burgers an exception. The Simpsons is actually an exception. Um, 
But even keeping that in mind, you know, one thing we talked about when we talked about comic books, when you talked about, um, when you talked about comic books was endings, right? something ending and how important that is. Uh, as of this recording, uh, Watchmen has wrapped on HBO. Uh, all the episodes are out. I have not seen all of them. I'm on about season, on about episode three. Um, just cause it's something that I actually care enough to sit down and watch very meticulously. Um, some people are calling for a season two, as far as I know right now, no season two is announced, but based on what I've heard of the entire show, having it just be like this nine hour story, this nine episode story, Sometimes that's the best thing you can do, you know, like keeping this at just 10 episodes, not extending it out. You don't lose a whole lot and you gain a lot from expanding it beyond the confines of just a, what, two, three hour movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I dig it. I, I, I like the idea that it's just 10 hours and I don't think that that's cheating. I don't think that that's a problem. I think that that's, you know, in its favor. How many times did you say that you've watched this show all the way through? Five or six times? At least five or six. Like, it, it might be closer to ten. <laughs> I mean, I I know people who have watched, like, Friends in the Office that much just because they play it in the background while they're, like, cooking and cleaning. But I'm assuming you're not doing that with this show. You're probably actually watching it. And you can do that. You can dig into it that way. I I I'm fully I'm fully down with a ten episode miniseries. I I don't think you should call it cheating. I'm huh? gonna I'm gonna heartily disagree with you on that one. I welcome your disagreement. You've you've given me the 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 confidence to have more confidence in my opinion. I mean, like like my thing is like if people ask me what is the greatest World War II movie ever made, I tell them Band of Brothers. If people ask me, you know, what is the greatest war TV show ever made. I still tell them band of brothers. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think, you know, for all the reasons you just listed that didn't occur to me at the time, like it really, you get the best of both worlds. You were able to tell this 10 hour long story that is essentially the entirety of world war two for these guys, but you don't have to spread it over you know, five years where you're doing one episode every week and you have to dilute your budget. It, it's, it's, you know, big budget with longer storytelling and it, it absolutely works. You know, I, I say this as a joke, but I really mean it. I would a hundred percent do a 10 episode mini podcast of forcing somebody to watch this show and then talk about it with me <laughs> because I have seen it that much. They sent us to North Africa. My brother's in North Africa. He says it's hot. Really? It's hot in Africa? Shut up. Uh, I have done something where like I would, I would figure out, okay, this, this character is in episode one and then, inevitably when that character dies, I kept a little book where it's like, okay, Sergeant Talbot got, you know, he got two in the leg at the battle of Carantan. And that was the end of the war for him. I have gone through this show meticulously. I love band of brothers. It, it, it is just one of my favorite things to watch on television. And 
I don't think I'm going to get sick of it anytime soon. It, it, it helps that it's World War II, you know? That was kind of like the last war where it seemed like we were 100% the good guys and, you know, maybe soldiers could be assholes, but they weren't necessarily doing some of the evil stuff that we know them to be doing in Vietnam. And, and, you know, maybe if they were doing that evil stuff, it, it hasn't really come to light as much. So that probably helps. But irregardless of that point, it, I love the show. Yeah. World War II is, this is not to disparage the show or any World War II media. World War II is the easy war. Yeah. It's the, it's the one where you're like, it's the most cinematic war because it's the war where you're like, oh, okay, here's clear good and evil. One thing that was really interesting when Wonder Woman came out uh, was the fact that it was a World War One movie. Right. And it stirred up that conversation of why don't we see more World War One movies? It always kind of seems like we either do the World War Two movies, which are the uh, rah, rah, freedom, go, fight the evil, or we do the Vietnam War movie where it's, Oh no, the authority has let us down and and they're continuing to let us down. We're just starting to get the Iraq War movies, which kind of just feel like Vietnam movies redux. Yeah, a little um, bit. With a touch of Islamophobia, but World War but World War One is complicated. World War One is the one war that very few people understand. Most people don't seem to know what happens between Archduke Ferdinand is shot and we screw over Germany at the <laughs> Treaty of Versailles. Right. We don't know what happens in between. Everything else is kind of a, I guess some some point there, there were trenches and gas masks. Yeah, a whole lot of mustard gas and bayonets. Yeah, like that's that's what we got, and and that's a disservice. That's a sad thing. Um, but you know, World War Two is so, it, cinema requires a certain degree of simplicity. It is very hard to tell that nuanced of a story in you know three hours. If you tell it in ten hours, you can get a little closer. But you know. MASH was all about Korea. It was 10 seasons about the Korean War. But, like, how often did they do shit regarding the Korean War's actual politics or events? Right, yeah, MASH was... I don't don't know. I've never actually seen an episode of MASH. Well, you know, being in my household, I've seen several. It's it's one of my dad's favorite TV shows, period. MASH was 10 years talking about the the, uh, Vietnam War... But in the show, it was still the Korean War. That's Mash. <laughs> there you go. So, but so so no, you've I've... you've added another reason for for that fact that it is simplistic enough to be a a story that you can sit here and um, you know really root for these guys without any reserve. Band of Brothers. I I heartily uh, recommend anybody who is at all interested watch it 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 gets gory absolutely um so if that bothers you then of course don't take it in but otherwise it is a a brilliant piece of of television cool sometime in like july of 2020 when i'm finally done with watchmen there you go i'll sit down with band of brothers And as is our our way, we've gone about 40 minutes now. So, Alex, do you want to get into your hate? No. I mean, yeah. Okay, so 
As always, Andy, I like to start with a question um, posed to you uh, for no other reason than to set me up to sound a little bit smart uh, with where I'm going with all of this. So uh, before we get into the actual introduction of the topic, I want to ask you a simple question, dear boy, and that is, what is a product that you have purchased, let's say sometime in your adult life? That has surprised you with how goddamn long it's lasted. And I, I felt like when you asked me this, this was especially for electronics. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but just something that you bought and maybe didn't expect to last too long. And then it ended up lasting way long. Yeah, I mean, really... Um, you know, I got a laptop when I graduated my senior year of high school and it was going to become like the laptop I did my college classes on. And for a, a good decade, it, it served me incredibly well until it famously died uh, moments <laughs> into a recording of this very show. <laughs> And I had to talk to you through the phone and pray to God your microphone picked me up. Uh, uh, that was the episode where you talked about Garfield. That was. So. Y'all should uh, y'all should go check out that episode. It's quite the audio experience. Indeed. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like like laptops, I feel like it's just kind of accepted aren't supposed to last a decade. And that was the first thing I thought of in, in, in answering your question. I like that. Uh, I like that you went high tech because my response is ridiculously low tech. Okay. There is a... Okay, we've talked about this on the show before. Andy, I don't go anywhere without a pocket knife. Sure. The only time I'm ever anywhere without a pocket knife is when I am flying on a plane and when I have to like be a place without a pocket knife, which makes me very uncomfortable. I don't like it, and every single time I've ever done it, I have seriously considered either mailing a pocket knife to myself or buying an inexpensive pocket knife at the place where I go to. I digress. The pocket knife I currently carry, uh, I believe is called a Tactech. I believe that's the brand. But it is a tactical pocket knife that I bought on Amazon for $7.00. And I bought I, and I bought it fully expecting like okay this is a crappy pocket knife I'm gonna use it for like a couple of years it's fine and then I'll throw it in a in like a bug out bag or something it'll it'll be okay it's an assisted open it has remained springy and solid and sharp and easily maintained with very little maintenance for a good four or five years now. And it is my very favorite pocket knife that I carry. I, I literally took it out of my pocket and put it on my nightstand when I got home from work two hours ago. And it is sitting there, and I will pick it right back up and carry it with me the when I, when I leave in the morning. And this $7 pocket knife has lasted me way longer than I expected it to, than I thought it had any credit for doing. So that was my answer, which is hella low-tech compared to your laptop. All right. I, you know, I love that answer. Why? Because it's very me. It is very, well, it's very you, but like, like, as you say, it's, it's, 
it's high tech versus low tech. And, you know, I had a Leatherman that I got much, much, much more recently than my laptop. And, you know, the, the knife blade dulled and then I've lost it since then. So, you know, I can't say that I've kept a pocket knife that long. That's horrifying. I've kept the same Leatherman since like 2008. And granted, I don't use it that often, but it's held up nicely. Mm-hmm. In any case, um, Andrew, thank you for my, thank you for that. Um, I know that we'll be bringing that in as we have this discussion about my topic, uh, my hate, which is planned obsolescence. Now, um, for those of you who, um, how do I put this, are happy. Uh, and don't obsess over the minute bullshit of consumer goods. Uh, I'm going to explain the term planned obsolescence. Uh, so, Andy, if you will bear with me, I know you're familiar with the term. No so. problem. Basic definition is, uh, and I totally took this uh, from an article by a an individual, a scholar named Jeremy below uh titled an economic theory of planned obsolescence an article i found on wikipedia so check the sources on wikipedia y'all uh it is a policy of planning or designing a product with an artificially limited useful life so that it becomes obsolete i.e unfashionable or no longer functional after a certain period of time um Basically, it is when someone produces a good, a purchasable consumer item with an artificially built-in lifespan that is artificial, or rather a lifespan that is artificially shortened so that you will need to buy the damn thing again. Right. Now, now, I do feel it important to point out that this is different from just a cheaply made product that naturally doesn't last long. If a pair of shoes was made for pennies in a sweatshop and sold for $20 on Amazon, I have bought shoes like these, um, and they fall apart after a year, that is not planned obsolescence because its crappiness and its short life cycle are the result of it having had cheap materials and low costs to begin with. So that they could sell a lot of them cheaply. The business model is we churn out thousands of these shoes and sell them for like nothing compared to similar looking things that are actually made with good quality. We put nothing into the materials and we get all our profits from selling a lot of them. They are not designed to fall apart. They fall apart because they're designed shitty. Does that distinction make sense? Yes, and it's an important one because I, you know, I've bought several pairs of those black work shoes that last me uh, eight months if I'm lucky. Yeah, and I'm sure they cost like a quarter of the really nice shoes that you know will last you like five or ten years. Yeah, I'm assuming. No, yeah, you're right. Not to send yeah. this into a topic we've talked about you know, ad nauseum, but it, it falls back into that. It's, it, it's expensive to be poor debate. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a, there's an old Terry Pratchett passage where he talked about this or he had a character in one of his books talk about it where like you might spend 
the same person will buy a, same, a pair of boots year after year after year, and they end up spending more than the person who bought one pair of really good expensive boots that last them 10 years. Right. So, yeah, that's it's, it's an important distinction. So um, before we get, like, full on into just how bullshitty this is, I'm going to name a couple of more, a couple of distinct types of planned obsolescence just so that we have a lot to work with. Okay. Uh, that, then we're going to discuss. So all of this, again, is taken from sources that I found on Wikipedia that I then looked up and, like, properly vetted. So bear with me. Okay, so the first type is contrived durability. So it's when you're looking at um, a manufacturer deliberately skimping on certain aspects of an otherwise quality product in order to make sure that it needs repair or replacement. In this case, think about like cars or furniture where plastic screws are used instead of metal ones. Um, All the other parts of it are great, good quality. It would pass a lot of tests. It would pass a lot of like initial tests coming out of coming out of like a factory. Um, A lot of initial consumer tests, people just kind of checking it out initially sitting on the furniture driving the car putting it through impact tests all of that good stuff but over a short shortened period an artificially shortened period of normal wear and tear it falls to bits and needs repair or replacement it wouldn't cost them much more to use the metal screws in that furniture uh, or to put um, proper metal screws in that lining for your car but you know, you pull up to get to look at your spare tire a few too many times. You snap them. Um, you do a little too much maintenance on the car, and suddenly you need to repair those parts. Sure, you can't get them otherwise. So that's contrived durability. Prevention of repairs is another one, um, which you mostly see in electronics, and very recently, actually, uh, if you've been following these very strange headlines, farm equipment. Uh, this is where the means to modify, fix, or replace parts in a product require proprietary tools or access rights, meaning you need to go through the manufacturer to unscrew your iPhone's casing and replace the battery, or you need to go to John Deere to service your fucking tractor because they straight up have the casings set up such where you need a John Deere proprietary machine to open them up and actually service your engine. What that does is just create this extra step and extra expense, whereas you would otherwise be able to just do this shit on your own, especially if you're crafty. You now have to go through all of these additional steps that serve the profits of the company you bought it from. It's kind of not really yours. It belongs to them You're basically renting it for the price that you put in, and you're paying them again to fix it. I was about to say, you're paying twice if you're lucky. Shut up and take my money! Yeah. Um, I got two more. Perceived obsolescence, um, which very simply, in line with marketing or um, fashion or, hey, look, again, Apple products... It's where there's a shortened life cycle to it, but it has less to do with the quality and more to do with the marketing and keeping up with the item as the latest status symbol. Um, 
I don't know about you, Andy. I've had the same cell phone for three and a half years. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm eligible for an upgrade, but I have more than anything, I've kind of just been lazy and haven't gotten it. And I don't need it because for what I use my phone for, which is basically screaming on Twitter, listening to podcasts and sending text messages, I, you know, I'm mostly good. So I, I, I haven't done that. How many people do you know that buy a new iPhone every single year? Um, Do you buy a new iPhone every single year? Well, okay. I don't buy a new phone every single year, but I do get the upgrade every two years as soon as it's available. But that has more to do with the fact that I am a notorious uh, phone battery killer. Um, and I leave the thing plugged in all night and eventually rot out the battery, as is the case with my current phone, which, like lasts the battery um about as long as the work day and then as soon as i come home i need to throw it back on charge so you want to talk about perceived obsolescence i'm sitting here like i suppose i could get a a, a new battery but i'm sitting here being like man can't wait for you know the new phone screen if for no other reason than i can leave the damn thing on all day and not worry about it okay I mean, I'll give you a little bit of a break on that because in that case, you're not doing it because it's the new thing. You're doing it because you, as a user of this product, have an incentive to. Right. So I'm not going to give you a lot of shit. I appreciate that. that, (laughs) That's not to say all our listeners and and all the people on Twitter shouldn't give you shit, but I'm not going to give you shit for this. Come at me, listeners. What do you think I'm going to argue on? It's my phone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Um, but you do see this a lot in, say, fashion, you know? that's It's a very dumb, trite movie trope sure. of, you know, don't stop your little last season Gucci shoes and me. Was that? I'm a Legally Blonde fan. What can I say? I was um, going to say, was that supposed no, to be Prada Rosie Perez? Shoes. <laughs> no, it was supposed to be the random is he gay or European guy from Legally Blonde. Uh, but I messed it up because they were Prada shoes, not Gucci shoes. Exactly. See, so I should be ashamed of myself. Your reference was lost on me. Continue. <laughs> you are a monster. Um, but yeah, that's I, I don't want to dive too deep into that one because it gets into a lot of gross misogyny. Um, but it, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. Um Last one is programmed obsolescence. Um, This is probably one I think that you can definitely speak to. Um, Think software and inkjet cartridges. Um, Ink, you you know, HP was sued because uh, they actually had uh, inkjet cartridges, which, yeah, I'm trying to read my own damn notes. Um, (laughs) There, HP was selling inkjet cartridges with predetermined page counts or time periods, at which point they would stop working, regardless of the condition of the cartridges, how much ink they had, whatever the situation. They would just stop working after a certain amount of time or pages. And they were actually sued for this. I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but, like, this is a legit thing that... There have been class action lawsuits for because they just programmed it in. Um, and alternatively, 
how many of us have software that we purchased that would stop working without certain updates? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes updates that weren't free. You know, I, Andy, you use the Adobe suite, right? I do indeed. And you pay a monthly for that, don't you? I do indeed. How often is it updated? It is updated maybe twice a year. Okay. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what happens when there is a new rollout on it and you're stuck making a decision about upgrading it. Well, you know, I can. This is the one instance where I can say Adobe has kind of gotten better because what it used to be before all of their programming was available in a, a, a cloud based suite system is you would have each individual you know, program, you would have Adobe Premiere and you would have Adobe Audition and each one would cost give or take a thousand dollars. And, you know, so you buy Adobe 9.0, you buy Adobe Audition 9.0 for a grand. And I know for a fact when it was, when that was the system, it was about, you would get about a year out of it before, you know, Adobe audition 10 came out the next year and you would have, then you would have to make the decision of, okay, do I spend another grand so I can get a couple of updates or do I risk using the outdated software and boning myself down the line, but saving some money, a substantial amount of money. Yeah. I'm glad to see here that they've gotten better on that subject, but it shows that you have yourself some experience with this particular type of planned obsolescence. Absolutely. So, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, the reason that I hate planned obsolescence is, systemically speaking, um... Its very existence is one of the most damning indictments of capitalism that I can actually think of. Um, I'm not a capitalist. I don't pretend to be. But I try not to do the let me just shit on capitalism without any nuance thing that I often see. Because, quite frankly, I think that... That's not going to win anybody over. But to me, if we're going to talk about the problems of capitalism, using planned obsolescence is actually a really, really great entry point. You know, the idea shoved down our throat is that the market, the free market, selects for the best products and the producers that most benefit the consumers, that the consumers will always end up going to those produ- those producers and those products. And planned obsolescence is one of the ways that producers fucking game the system. Sure. You know? Yeah, most companies that do this are to some degree um, oligopolies. You know, they might not have monopolies. They're not the only game in town. But they have the majority market share. You know, I... You mentioned you mentioned Adobe. 
who else is in the game of doing the things that Adobe does? You've got a couple of competitors, but you know, Adobe really does kind of have the monopoly going on right now. A lot of, you know, the answer used to be final cut, but um, a lot of people have their own separate issues with final cut. And then you get into third party uh, editing softwares like Avid or DaVinci, which are, so highly specific that like it, it really is Adobe's marketplace right now. Sure. You know, I'm um I've recently been uh researching software for sheet music because that's something that I've been interested in kind of exploring as I've kind of deepened my understanding of music. Um the go-to like industry standard music sheet music software is called Sibelius. And I, any one of you, like, if you Google just, like, reviews of Sibelius, people hate Sibelius. They loathe this software that has the largest market share on digitally composing music. Um, the one that's kind of up and coming against it is an open source one called MuseScore, which is not great. It's not great, but it's free. So that's honestly probably going to be the one that I end up going with just because at a certain point, like because it's open source, updates are never really going to be the same issue that they are with something like Sibelius, which is trash, but it's kind of the biggest game in town, especially I'm not looking to do this professionally, but I would need to if I cared to do that. If I want to write scripts, you know, that's something that I looked at a lot while I was in graduate school. You kind of need um, the industry standard drafting software, which I think is called Final Draft. Which is expensive as dicks. Is, uh, and I'm like, yo, can I just use my Microsoft Word? Like, Does that mean Celtics no. isn't a thing anymore? <laughs> yo, Celtics is, but it's now subscription-based. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, and it's not the industry standard. What happens is people write on Celtex, and then they export it as final draft files. Got it, Okay. It's like it's like people using Google Docs to open and send and save Microsoft Word documents. Okay, I understand that. Same kind of deal. If you do it enough, you can be okay with it, but it's going to be a pain in the ass. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Now, the point is that you pay a penalty for not subscribing to the oligopoly, and if you subscribe to the oligopoly, you get fucked on this obsolescence stuff. The other side of this, I mentioned the HP thing. Um, HP printers are huge. I have an HP printer at my job. I have HP printers in my apartment complex business center. HP printers are not the only game in town. However, HP printers have enough market share that they do a pretty brisk business. And even when they get caught pulling bullshit like this, the profit they make off of it is way bigger than the penalties. That class action lawsuit I mentioned regarding its shitty, shitty printers, they ended up paying $5 million after losing that lawsuit. Which is hilarious considering that they made $53.5 billion in 2018. 
what is $5 million compared to $53.5 billion? They don't have any incentive to care yeah, about this. Yeah. Like, it's... And like we keep coming back to on this podcast, the people who are most screwed by this tend to be the poor. If you're solidly middle class, you buy a new smartphone every year um, or every other year, as Andy apparently does, um, you know, it's not too big of a deal. But if you're poor and your used iPhone bricks because of the software changes, because a new U2 album's downloaded on it and it's somehow destroyed everything. <laughs> um, Seems like an oddly I'm, I'm cl- specific example. I've, I'm actually not an iPhone user. I'm Samsung all the way, but I like I, I love my Android phone. But um, but basically, if you're if your used iPhone bricks because you're it finally gets shut down after all the updates. And by the way, they tell you that uh, when it comes to software updates on your electronics, most of the time they say you shouldn't upgrade past one generation of uh, of a new software. So if you're if if you if your iOS updates once, you're probably fine. If it updates an additional time, you will probably run into some functionality issues. If it updates an additional time, you're probably fucked. Hmm. Okay. That's not a hard and fast rule, but it is a general rule that most electronics experts notate. So you're turning off updates. You're not having access to certain things. If you're a small business owner who needs to update your software or god forbid your machinery due to that, you know, that all that job creating revenue um that we're always talking about with small business owners, it's being sold off to the multinationals which could be better used by actual fucking human beings. Yeah. When I argue capitalism with diehard capitalists, this is one of the first places I go to in order to say, look, you need, at the very, very least, you need to agree with Adam Smith when he was fucking writing the literal book on capitalism and say, we need a little bit of reasonable restriction. Because in an age where the only penalties are bullshit lawsuit settlements that mean nothing to a bottom line... And you can hide most of your misconduct with good marketing. Something like planned obsolescence just happens. And there's no proper way to address it. So I think it's a good endpoint for just going, you know what? Capitalism, unfettered capitalism, maybe not the best idea. Yeah. It's almost like no maybe system. You can keep your iPhone for a few years. You know. Andrew. Listen, um, maybe I'll just get the battery. We'll, we'll see. I've also, <laughs> I've also cracked the screen to the point where I'm, I'm worried about them trying to replace the battery. I don't want my whole phone to fall apart. But next it, one, it's okay. I, I said I wasn't gonna give you shit, and then I totally gave you shit purely for a cheap eh, laugh. So deserved shit. I'm the bastard here. All I know is next time I'm getting an OtterBox. I mean, fair enough. Or, you know, you can get an Android. Uh, my final note, just because it seems so relevant. Um, you're not a big gamer. 
So maybe no, I'm not. I, I know that this might not have come immediately to top of your mind, but you know, anyone out there needs to ask the question, why do people buy the same four sports games year after year after year? It's only because we want the new rosters and people have worked ways around that where it's like, you know, we could just upload new rosters onto the pre-existing games and then EA, because it's always EA, goes, no, 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 buy 2K20. There you go. Sure. I mean, and it's funny because the one the one place where I can kind of go, you know what? I think they're doing this right. And I'm going to totally be the music dick again. Um, Every time I've ever looked at purchasing a new guitar, and to be clear... I haven't bought a new guitar in probably 11 years. Um, but every time I look at it, um, something that I'm reminded of is, you know, maybe I don't need a new guitar. Maybe I'm okay if I just modify my current guitars a little bit. And aftermarket changes on guitars and basses are not only like are not only available, they're a selling point for the instrument. There's a way to do this where you can still be this big profitable entity and still make room for these kinds of things. You know, obviously you can't turn off, like Fender can't turn off my bass because I haven't like come to the factory in 10 years to have them like service it. But a selling point on the base that I have is the fact that if I want to change the pickups on it, if I want to update the finish, if I want to change the neck on it, I can do that. And I don't need to go through Fender to do it. I can go to somebody else and do that. I was looking at a listing today for a parts Fender guitar, which is literally a guitar cobbled together from parts of other guitars. Maybe it broke a neck here, but the casing's still good. Maybe this one had blown out pickups, but the neck is still good. And the shop basically got these parts, put it together, and said, hey, look, guitar, let's sell it to you for what these parts are essentially worth. Like, that is a market where the ability to modify, the ability to update, the ability to not worry about what's fashionable to the ability to go somewhere other than the manufacturer to get these modifications has resulted in really, really great products. A lot of the time, there's a way to do this right. And it's sad that we as consumers accept this bullshit. So planned obsolescence, fucking hate it. You ready for our question? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so this was another relationships.txt question. Uh, would you like to read it, Andy, or shall yeah, I? Yeah, just because this, this damn thing made me laugh so hard. <laughs> okay. Like, I was going to say, um, you know, re- oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was, was just going to say? say, you know, we're, we're going to try to take in 
questions off of, you know, the email, or if you want to slide into our DMs, please be our guests. I don't want to do a whole bunch of relationship.txt questions in a row, but this one is just so stupid and I love it. And I, I, I'm making an exception in this case. Okay. Chef kiss. Wonderful. Go ahead and read it. (laughs) All right. So, uh, the title is brother picked fights with boyfriend and lost and is making things difficult. Bit of backstory. We're all in our late twenties. Boyfriend and I live together and we are visiting my family for a few weeks. Brother was a yellow belt in karate and an okay wrestler, but he quit after about a year. Boyfriend is a black belt in jujitsu karate and judo as well as a kickboxer for about nine years. He's in much better shape than brother. None of them are thugs or violence, so this is all hard for me. Boyfriend and brother have known each other for years and were friendly. Then last week, my brother wanted to spar my boyfriend. He insisted he could beat him and wanted to wrestle. My boyfriend was apprehensive, but said I was fine. But I said I was fine with it, and he agreed. I was half watching, and all I saw was my brother get flipped, then spun or something, and he was getting choked out. My brother was annoyed and wanted to go again. Same result. He said that fighting on the ground was unfair as he had been backed as he as he had a bad back, so they decided to fight standing up. My boyfriend kind of hung back and didn't really swing, so my brother got really aggressive and started swinging wildly, and my boyfriend kicked him in the leg. My brother fell down and started cussing out my boyfriend. <laughs> My boyfriend helped him, and then my brother started punching him in the face, so my boyfriend flipped him over and put his leg on him until he calmed down. I feel bad for my boyfriend, as he really didn't want to do it anyway, and I talked him into it. The next day, my brother was acting all sulky. Since then, he's been weird the entire time, and it's making things with my family weird. I don't think either of them did anything wrong, but I'm not sure what to do. My brother always saw himself as a tough guy, so I don't think he's taking this well. I could use some advice. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh... We're going to name this person in a second, but I, I, I right off the bat, I, I think somebody did something wrong. <laughs> I agree with you. So, so, so Alex, um, I, I've got a name and I want to run it by okay. you. Okay. Um, in this situation, I see the brother as... King Hercule, a.k.a. Mr. Satan from Dragon Ball Z. Let's call the boyfriend Gohan, which would make our uh, our lovely question asker Videl. I am completely here for that. Yes. <laughs> 100%. It's way better than the Fight Club reference I was going to make. So let's... To- we, you know, we haven't had a Dragon Ball Z reference since Android 18. Oh, it's been a minute then, yeah. What, our first episode? I think you're right, yeah. All right, so this is, what, episode 38? So we're bringing it back. So, um, let's say someone out there actually could beat your dad. Just hypothetically. What would you say to that? I almost wish he would lose. All this fame has totally gone to his head. So, Videl. Uh, Alex, I I read. You you go ahead. Oh, okay. Let's start with the obvious. You say that you don't think either your boyfriend or your brother did anything wrong. 
And I'm going to tell you that you are half right. Um, I think your boyfriend, fr from the sound of your description, obviously every story has, you know, different sides, but I don't think your boyfriend did anything wrong here. I think your boyfriend sounds like a perfectly reasonable person. I, th I think Gohan was nothing but like a prince here. It sounds like he didn't want to get involved with this. I I've actually heard many times that people who are properly skilled in fighting uh, tend to not want to fight. That has actually been my experience. Like, yeah. They understand what can happen from that, so they tend not to want to. Um, and it sounds like your boyfriend was honestly looking after himself and meeting the situation as it came in a very respectful um, but proper way. Your brother's a piece of shit. Um, yeah. Like, this is, this is toxic masculinity 101, yo. Like, yeah. you say that he always, yeah, like, you say that he always saw himself as a tough guy, so he's not taking this well. Um, frankly, if he is smart, he will learn from this. He will learn humility. He will learn that toughness is not this gross toxic horrible like cobra kai version of like toughness that he seems to have in his head and he'll learn some fucking humility from this um the question is if he will and i'm not convinced that he will and i'm not convinced that that's your problem i think you want to have things be cool with your brother, but your brother's the one being a shithole here. And frankly, um, I don't think you'll get very far indulging him. His ego needed bruising. It was bruised. If you're interested in calling him out further on that, I can give advice to that. But his sulking is his bullshit, and you should not be going out of your way to make him feel nice about this. If anything, you know, based on your explanation, I think you owe your boyfriend an apology for, you know, pushing him along into this. That's your prerogative. That's probably, you know, a secondary priority. But yeah, like you want advice on how to make your brother feel better about this? He shouldn't feel better about this. He should feel ashamed of himself and not for losing, for being a dick. Andy? Right, yeah, because, I mean, like, really where where you lose me is at the point when Hercule um, starts swinging aggressively here. When he's, he's already 0 for 2, your boyfriend helps him up, and he, like, this feels like such a movie trope. The, like and and not in, even in that much of a fun way just the thing where it's like aha you let your guard down by helping me up off my ass attack pocket sand <laughs> exactly <laughs> like the the real issue here i think is that 
there is tension between you you your boyfriend and on the other side your brother now and and maybe you know it's bleeding into the rest of the family and kind of to go along with alex like i think the way to alleviate the tension is you need to double down and i i think it's time to kick your brother while he's down just a little bit maybe don't necessarily be super cruel about this but be like okay listen you wanted to fight you fought you got your ass handed to you and you need to get over that now because you are being a problem. You know, you didn't do anything. Your boyfriend didn't do anything. I like Alex's point about maybe you owe your boyfriend an apology for putting him in that situation and making things weird with your brother. And also, you know, maybe your parents, we don't really get what their take is on it, but you're stuck with your family for, and I quote a few weeks, like the only way out is through and you need to get your brother to understand that being an aggro, like I was great back in the day when spoiler, you weren't great back in the day. Toxic male is completely unacceptable. You clearly like yeah. your boyfriend, you're living with them. And, you know, your, your, your brother always saw himself as a tough guy. Well, the nicest way I could think to frame it as, listen, I know you were always a tough guy. You were always going to be the one to protect me. Clearly, I found a tougher guy and somebody who can protect me really well. <laughs> I learned, I, I, I took, I learned, I, he learned it by watching you. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's that's the nicest way. But really, like your brother doesn't deserve you being nice. He doesn't deserve you tiptoeing around the issue and mincing words. He was a complete jackass. I couldn't read the question without laughing at the part where he's getting his ass handed to him. Like you need to sit him down and be like, you were an unacceptable douche and you need to make that right. And now I need to go make it right with my boyfriend who, again, kicked your ass. <sighs> Videl, uh, it's it's as simple as that. You're asking the wrong question. You know, it's your brother fucked up. Yeah. Your brother is making it weird. You, if the only way that you could halt the weirdness would be to indulge and this would only be a maybe work, and even then it's a band-aid, it would be to indulge your brother in his ego, reassure him that it wasn't a fair fight, play into this weird narcissistic fantasy he has where he's this incredible badass. And you know what? That's not going to be healthy. That's not healthy for your relationship with him. That's not healthy for his self-image. It's probably not healthy for your, like... I can't imagine it's good for your, like, personal view of your brother. Like, I'm sorry. I don't respect people who, you know, need their ego stroked like that. It's a big reason why I have a big problem with showing certain elders in my family, like, the respect they claim to deserve. Like, no, if you need your ego stroked, if you demand respect 
as something that you haven't earned. I'm sorry, you don't deserve it, and I'm not going to give it to you. Same thing here. Your brother, I'm sorry, you should lose respect for your brother on this, and you should be calling him out on it. Or if you're not calling him out on it, at the very least, you should not be indulging him. So, yeah. Family sucks (laughs) a lot of the time. Absolutely. It's complicated. It's complicated. And, And, you know, this is... This was a great question. It honestly was. Um, But the answer is very simple. You know, you... Things are going to be weird. Um, You can either do nothing and let them be weird because your brother's making them weird. Or you can call your brother on it. Which he might not take well. But at the very least, he's being called on this bullshit. And... If there's anything that 2019 showed us, it's that calling people on their bullshit is fucking important. Amen. Yeah, let's live Andy, do you want to share the news honestly. you shared with me earlier? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's live 2020 honestly. Um, it, it, not quite at time of recording, but in the process of this recording session, uh, the House formally voted to impeach Donald Trump. And so... We're speaking to you from the past. We don't know what the Senate has done yet, but let's live honestly and let us, uh, you know, get unrepentant, horrible monsters out of offices of government that they never deserve to be in in the first place. And at the very least, call your brother on his bullshit. Absolutely. Because if I'm right... Because if I'm right, this impeachment goes nowhere. Nothing happens in the Senate. This was all essentially calling someone out, but ultimately does nothing to change, shift the balance of power. The very least you can do is call your brother out on being a piece of shit. Absolutely. If you want to, and that's our show. Yeah. If you want to call someone out as a piece of shit, uh, <laughs> do so. <laughs> But if you're afraid to do so and you want us to do it, you can send those questions in to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We will also take any relationship question of any, you know, shape or size, and it doesn't have to be romantic, it doesn't have to be familial. But as you can tell, we kind of enjoy putting idiots in their place. Uh, from the safety of a microphone. Exactly. Uh but yes, send us your questions. Uh, we love relationships TXT, but um, we like your we like you guys more. So send them our way. We like knowing um, that our nicknames will reach you. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Uh, you can subscribe to us to hear those nicknames on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, mom, uh, you I respect all the way. Um, We would also love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those. Uh, You can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions. And you can follow us to keep up with new episodes. That's right. Before I get into my personals, I'm going to say, you know, this is officially the third year that we've been doing the show. 
It hasn't been three years yet, but 2020 will make it the third year we've been in operation. We saw some growth in 2019, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, I want to keep the ball rolling, and I want to call you, our dear listeners, to action to, you know help make LHR an even bigger thing in 2020. One of the ways you can do that is you can follow us. We, we truly would love a, a rating and review to start the year off. Um, and another way you can do that is by following us personally on Twitter. You can follow me, Andy Boel at Jovocop2113. If you liked talking, if you liked hearing us talk about, uh, you know, World War II movies and such, I talk about all kinds of movies on my other podcast, Cult Fiction, with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. And uh, you can follow and like us there as well. Yeah, and I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Y'all, thank you so much for listening. Happy 2020. It's going to be a long one. Um, And you know what? Just to make it a little bit better, you go ahead and tell your enemies. (laughs) 